And we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, begin with her uh, presentation. So many of you know uh, Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. She's a fellow of the American Scientific Affiliation. She's an astronomer and author. Uh, she's contributor to one of the books that I saw in the, uh, in the ASA book room downstairs, The Perspectives on an Evolving Creation. Uh, she has her bachelor's degree in physics from MIT, and while she was there, she discovered something in the sky that had her name on it. I was once uh, visiting, uh, listening to an astronomy lecture, and one of the people in the audience asked, or was, was very impressed with how astronomers were, had such great telescopes. They could look at things and see the names of the stars as well. So uh, when Jennifer was an undergraduate, she discovered a, a comet, and it's called 114 Wiseman Skiff, while she was working as a research assistant there at uh, MIT, at MIT. And then she did her PhD in astronomy at Harvard University. So before her current position, she was, uh, she was uh, tasked by the American Physical Society, the largest association of physicists in the, in the country, in, in, in the world, to be the Congressional Science Fellow in 2001-2002, where she served on the staff of the Science Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. And for three years, she also I was a program scientist, Hubble Space Telescope program scientist at NASA headquarters in Washington. Uh, Jennifer is currently the chief of the Laboratory for Exoplanets and Stellar Astrophysics at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, as well as being a visiting scientist at Johns Hopkins University. So we're very pleased to have Jennifer uh, speak to us uh, this morning. Uh, let's uh, begin uh, this morning also with a, with, with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercies that you show to us and that are new every morning. We thank you and we praise you for this new day, for the sunshine, for the beautiful weather, and for the food and drink that you've provided, for nourishing rest, for fellowship, for an opportunity to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ and as people in science, doing and using science in service to you and to one another and to your world. Lord, we thank you for this day and for the opportunities that lie before us today in speaking and listening and worship and fellowship. We pray that you would be present among us with your word and spirit, that you'd guide us in your ways, that we may know your truth and may know how best to follow you and to, and to serve you in all that we do and say and think. We praise you and we give you the glory for all your good and gracious gifts to us from day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So please join me in, in welcoming uh, Dr. Wiseman, who will be speaking to us under the title, Our Magnificent Universe, Serving God by Exploring the Cosmos. Okay, is this on? Yes, okay, and let me do one more thing, which is this. And let me throw my breakfast back at my husband because otherwise <laughs> I may not get off. <laughs> Good morning. I can't think of a more wonderful way to prepare for a worship than to look at the heavens. Uh, can you? Nah. Okay, so before I actually pull up the PowerPoint, I wanted to pull up this little picture here, if I can make it work. And now that I've 
change the size. Okay. Um, I don't know if I can make this look any better at the moment, but do you know what this is? Okay, this is Saturn. And I'm not sure this is going to work right now, but I didn't actually get this put into the presentation, so I wanted to start with it. Um, and let me see if I can figure out how. Um, this is a, an image from the spacecraft Cassini, which has gone out to observe Saturn and send back fabulous images and uh, probe into the atmospheres of the moons of Saturn. But one little feature, um, which I don't even think is going to show up on this picture. It, let's see. Is, it under, is that under this one? Okay. Yeah, this works. Um, what I wanted to show you is, is, you know, we talk about service to our world. This is our world, okay? This is Earth when Cassini went on to, to the far side of Saturn. And so we're looking back toward the sun, or, or at least at, to, at a, an angle where you could see the reflection of sunlight from the Earth. So these are the rings of Saturn. You're close to Saturn. And that's Earth right there, that little dot. That's our home. So when you start getting away, and not too far away, actually, as far as the size of space is concerned, our little planet uh, really does look like what's referred to as a pale blue dot. And... Um, I think we need to uh, keep this in mind that, that our universe is uh, huge. Our place in it is small, but God's love for us is enormous. All right, so let me now start this, and I'm going to see if this will work. The theme of the conference is serving God by exploring the cosmos. We'll see if we can do that today. This is a galaxy. It's a somewhat typical spiral galaxy. Galaxies are made of 100 billion stars, more or less. And most of the volume of the galaxy is not stars. It's gas and dust. And in these uh, spiral arms of gas and dust in spiral galaxies, you have very active star formation often going on. Toward the middle of galaxies, you often have what's called a halo, which is basically what you see as a, a conglomeration of so many stars that for, to our eyes it just looks like a large globe of light. Some of them have barred structures in the middle that may be the result of the merging of two galaxies. We're going to see how we can uh, serve God by exploring things like this in the cosmos. Um, and I don't know if this advances. Um, I'm wondering if we could turn the lights down at all. Is, does anybody know if that's even a possibility in this room? But uh, um, if not, that's okay. But, uh, you know, astronomy works best in the dark, so. Um. Okay, thanks. Um. No one may go to sleep, okay? This is, a, this is not permission for a morning nap. Um, these are stars, and, and every once in a while, I think it's just um, good to uh, step back. We don't get to do this in the profession very much. Just look at a sample of the universe and kind of be amazed at God's extravagance. We'll get back to this a little bit later. This is a, a star cloud in our own galaxy. The conference theme today, or this weekend, is 
the heart of science to do right, love mercy, walk humbly, doing and using science domestically and abroad in service to God, to God's world and our sisters and brothers. And so you think, I think, you know, okay, where does astronomy fit in as service? And um, uh, it's, it's a bit of a stretch, but it can be done. So I would say studying the heavens service to God, absolutely. In fact, Psalm 111, uh, which is a verse that uh, I ran across right before I came on this trip. So I, I think of it as, as uh, maybe a message that God wanted me or us to hear this weekend. Psalm 111 says, I will extol or praise the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. We're the assembly. Hopefully we're the upright too, thanks to God. Um, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. So uh, let's ponder um, and delight in them and delight in God today. We have permission to do this, both from a, a philosopher Kant and theologian Calvin. Immanuel uh, uh, Kant said, two things continue to fill the mind with ever-increasing awe and admiration. And those two things are the starry heavens and the moral law within. So uh, that kind of gives a lot of prominence to the study of the heavens. And John Calvin said, for astronomy is not only pleasant, but it's also useful to be known. It cannot be denied that this art unfolds the admirable wisdom of God. Amen and amen. Okay. Um, throughout human history, the peoples of the earth have often, have always looked up to the sky, sometimes with wonder, sometimes with awe, sometimes with fear, um, sometimes worshiping the objects of the sky. And the biblical writers also viewed the heavenly bodies as important, but not as gods in themselves, but as evidence of the glory and omnipotence of the one who created them. So, uh, you know, many of you know this better than I, but modern science was, was enabled in part by this understanding that the elements of nature are not divine, so we can safely and objectively study them as they point to the divine. And in fact, in scripture, the heavens are a fundamental, signif- uh, of fundamental significance in creation. The very beginning of Genesis, God said, you know, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that that light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness made the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And then there's a little toss-in verse that says he also made all the stars. And I'm going to, you know, expound on that a little bit as we understand this fantastic and ongoing process. We also know of, of some unusual portions of scripture where God uses the heavens for signs and wonders. Remember when, uh, celestial motion paused for Joshua to allow more time for battle And I've often prayed that God would pause celestial motion so I could have more time to prepare my presentations and things, but that hasn't, so far, has not been an answered prayer. Um, The royal uh, scholars, otherwise known as the wise men, as opposed to wise man, um, knew the prophecy of a king of Israel to be born when a certain bright star would appear in the east. And sure enough, this, this event led them to find Jesus. And even Jesus said there would be signs in the sun, moon, and stars at the end of the age. But most of the time in scripture, the heavens are mentioned in the context of praise for their creator. You all know Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. I experienced this even in a research context. Um, 
it's a very unifying field. We, I, have, I have collaborators all over the world from countries that might in other contexts have been considered, at least in the past, to be political enemies. And, and we are united in our study and collaboration to, to understand the heavens and, and the handiwork of God. So I, I see this as a, as a very true verse in many, in many respects. Okay. So here's some questions that we might have about the universe, just to kind of get you thinking this morning. Um, I can, I'm not answering all these questions today. These are just questions that we might have. You know, how big is the universe? Um, how old is the universe? What are the latest discoveries in astronomy? Um, what's happening now in the universe? And some of you might quietly be wondering to yourself, um, what exactly is the universe? So um, when I use the context of the universe, I'm talking about everything that we know about in the physical uh, realm, all stars, all galaxies, all forces, everything. But of course, there's, there's, uh, there are other definitions for that term so that you could actually have multiple universes. Uh, the multiverse theory is, is hot right now. Um, but even so, um, we believe that God is in charge and overall. What will happen to our universe eventually? Are there planets around other stars? Could we ever visit them? Uh, is there life on other planets? Is that life intelligent? Um, are they unintelligent like us? Uh, do they have the same, same problems as we have? You know, if these, if these beings are, are, are uh, advanced, uh, would they have uh, a belief in God? Would they have they fallen? Would they have crime? Um, you know, you could go on and on there. What, what does the immensity of the universe mean for me, you know, for us? Are we significant? We just saw what Earth looks like from Saturn. Imagine what it looks like from another galaxy. Uh, what do the heavens tell us about God? Okay. So we could talk about these things a long time. I'd like us to, to start our little tour this morning by gazing at the universe from different perspectives. This is the Hubble Space Telescope. It is a satellite that is currently orbiting the Earth. That's the Earth back behind it there. That picture was taken from the space shuttle on a servicing mission in 2002. So they had gone up and put in new instruments and, and uh, uh, new batteries and so forth at that time. Hubble is working okay right now. It's sending back lots of images, but I'm, I worked with the Hubble Space Telescope program for three years at NASA headquarters. And uh, for a while, it was looking like we might not have it much longer. But I'm thankful to say that uh, in October, we're planning to have astronauts go up and, and service it one more time. So it'll keep working for several more years. When I talk about looking at the universe from different perspectives, though, I'm not talking about let's move to different positions in the sky and look at it from different angles. I want to look at it from perspectives that are a little different from that. And I'll show you what I mean. <laughs> Let's look at it from the perspective of magnitude first. Here's that star cluster again, and I, um, uh, I love it because it just shows you the variety of things and the numbers of things uh, that are out there. And just <clears throat> to give you a little reminder of your high school astronomy, <coughs> our sun is a star. It happens to be the nearest one to us. Um, our Earth is a planet that orbits around the sun. There are lots of other planets, um, and there's even planets around other stars. We know that now. We didn't know that for sure until just about 15 years ago. 
There are billions of stars in our galaxy, which is called the Milky Way. It's a, a spiral galaxy similar to the one I showed you earlier. There are both old stars and baby stars in our galaxy. The baby stars are nestled into these gas clouds. Um, gas clouds are of all kinds are kind of given the generic term uh, nebulae at times. And there are billions of other galaxies. We've only known that for a few decades. They, they often look like beautiful spiral swirls of gas and stars. There are different kinds of galaxies. There are these spiral galaxies. There are um, spherical galaxies. There are fragmented galaxies. This is a spiral galaxy, the Whirlpool. And you can see from this one, as I mentioned, that the spiral arms are beautiful. Um, but you can also see these dark lanes of dust that fill in these spiral arms. Uh, dust and gas is the largest volume of these, of these galaxies. The bright spots here are not stars. They are lit up regions of gas where there are many, many stars forming. And when a young star actually forms, the, the large ones uh, in these pockets of gas, they ionize the, the leftover gas around it, which creates these, these bright and gorgeous colors. This is another galaxy that one can see, just happens to be edge on. So that gives you a different perspective on what other galaxies can look like. Here's that uh, spiral uh, uh, plane, although you can see that it has a little bit of a warp structure in it. And then this bright uh, sort of a region that, that hovers around the center is called the halo. And there, the halo is typically older stars that fill this region and surround the central part of a galaxy. There's so many stars that for, from this distance, it just looks like a bright glow. Just uh, to give you just a few numbers, um, uh, Earth is 150 million kilometers from the sun. Pluto is 6 billion kilometers from the sun. And then we have to start using a different unit of, um, of distance because our regular numbers start becoming pointless. So one light year, the distance light travels in a year is about you know, 10 million million kilometers. The nearest star in our own galaxy is 38 million million kilometers or 4.2 light years away. Our Milky Way galaxy is 150,000 light years across. So you know, for light from one side of the galaxy of our own to get to the other takes 150,000 years. Our nearest neighbor big spiral galaxy um, is Andromeda. And the Andromeda galaxy is 2 million light years away. That's our, our nearest. Now, we do have the Magellanic Cloud, which are little sister fragment galaxies near us that are a little bit closer. But the nearest sort of grand spiral is Andromeda. How many of you have actually seen Andromeda with a telescope? Yeah, quite a few of you. So that's something, that's a, that's a nice, if you have a dark backyard, it's a backyard object. When you look at it, you're looking at two million uh, uh, light years away and ago. Um, we see galaxies at distances of several billion light years away. So um, we're looking, astronomy is, is, is a fabulous and almost unfathomable time machine. We're seeing galaxies as they looked when they left the galaxy long ago. We were seeing the light as they looked when they left the galaxy long ago. There are about 100 billion galaxies and about 100 billion stars in each one, meaning that there are roughly 10,000 billion, billion, give or take a few, stars in the universe. So one of the questions Billy Graham said he wants to ask God when he gets to heaven is, why, you know, why so many stars? It just kind of shows something about the 
extravagant nature of, of God that we needn't, we shouldn't uh, overlook during our short span on this planet. Here are some of those galaxies. I'm sure many of you have seen this image. This is the, the ultra-deep feel, it's called, taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. This is not a special direction in the sky. In fact, it was chosen to be kind of a drab direction to look in the sky because it didn't have too many nearby stars. Just a little pencil beam uh, area uh, in, in the sky, and the telescope was pointed for several days to collect light using what's called the advanced camera for surveys on the Hubble. The idea was to, to see the faintest things you could see. And, you know, it was well, well expected that you would see many galaxies, given that we sort of understand the distribution of galaxies in the universe. But nevertheless, you know, seeing something like this is, is quite astounding. It, it generally silences everyone who looks at this for a little while. Every one of these dots of light here is a galaxy. You know, you can tell that's a spiral galaxy if you have good eyes, and that one is too. Um, all these little blips of light that look like noise in the background, those are galaxies as well. There's a couple of stars here. You can tell them because they have these little diffraction spikes. They're in the nearby field, so they're in our own galaxy. But all the rest of these are galaxies, each one with at least 100 billion stars for the most part. You see red galaxies and blue galaxies, spiral galaxies, odd-shaped galaxies. Uh, many of these red galaxies appear red because they are caught up, well, we all are caught up in the expansion of the whole universe. And the more distant objects are moving away from us faster than the, than the closer objects. And the faster something moves away from us, the more red-shifted it li its light becomes as it travels toward us. The wavelengths of light are stretched along with the expansion of the universe, and we see them as redder colors than the colors that were originally emitted from these galaxies. So there's a third dimension here that's hard to tease out um, in this two-dimensional image, but that third dimension is awe-inspiring, and astronomers spend much of their effort trying to tease out distances to things, using things like these Doppler shifts and measuring brightnesses of things that we know how bright they intrinsically must be. Let's gaze at the universe from yet another perspective, and that's the perspective of beauty. There we are again, my favorite little star cluster. Um, what do you notice about these stars? Colors. Colors, yes. What else? Yeah. Density, Density right? There are size, right? Size, patterns, colors, density. Um, these stars, when you see different brightnesses of stars when you look out at night, you don't know unless you do further study whether the reason a star is brighter or dimmer is because it just happens to be closer and that makes it brighter or, or if it's intrinsically brighter. But in a contained cluster like this one, all the stars are in fact more or less the same distance from us. So the differences in brightness here are actually intrinsic. You see different brightnesses of stars. You see different colors. Stars are different colors. The, the uh, bluer stars are actually the hotter ones. The redder ones have cooler atmospheres. Um, there are big stars that are larger than our sun 
they will live shorter lives because bigger stars have faster and more energetic fusion processes. There are stars smaller than our sun that actually live longer and, and uh, more, more calm lives. Um, so uh, the beauty here is real. The diversity is here. And, and there is a verse, which I should have included here, that uh, in one of Paul's letter where he says, even star, star differs from star in splendor. So even he noticed this. All right, this is my, one of my very favorite images of another spiral galaxy. It has, astronomers have, have a knack for beautiful names. This one is NGC 1309. And um, this, uh, this galaxy um, uh, is a typical spiral, but I love the sort of beautiful symmetry of this one. You can see several arms. You see the bright, uh, the bright core. But what I love about this image is the junk in the background, okay? So this, the kind of noise in the background of this image are many other beautiful background galaxies. There's one there. There's one of these barred spiral here. There's uh, one of these, you know, uh, very reddened and perhaps edge-on objects here, a very reddened galaxy here, here, here. All these things in the background are distant galaxies that are in their own right uh, majestic and fabulous. Um, this, anybody know what this is? That's right. Um, uh, Orion is uh, clearly visible from most places in, in the night sky. And um, I did my thesis work looking down in this region right here, which is a very active region of star formation going on. Um, you all know about uh, Rigel down here and, and Betelgeuse up here, which is an old star that's, that's becoming unstable and may, in fact, explode as a supernova one of these days within the next day or the next few thousand years. Um, but the little box down here is to show you what it's like when you zoom in on this region looking in, a, in another wavelength, looking in infrared light, which allows you to peer into what is invisible in, in regular optical light. So this, teles this picture was taken with a ground-based optical telescope. Down in there is the Orion Nebula. This also is, is an optical telescope image, but I'll show you the infrared one coming up. Um, the Orion Nebula using certain filters uh, uh, shows you something very different. So when you look at the actually ionized gas, as I mentioned before, young stars uh, turn on before the gas around them has had a time to dissipate. So once these massive stars turn on, they start creating beautiful colors as they ionize the gas around them with their brand new bright radiation. Um, okay, progression. Let's look a little bit at the progressive history of the universe because I think that this shows us something about the nature of God. Again, here is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field again, and I mentioned to you that we can see very distant red galaxies as, as well as more nearby uh, uh, spiral galaxies in this region. What do we learn when we compare some of these more distant galaxies to the ones that are more near to us? Well, uh, scientists have done that. They've taken these ultra-deep field and, and selected the ones that are intrinsically the reddest. So that's represented by these sort of green circles um, in this picture. These are the ones that are um, actually, they're reddened not just because they have a lot of dust or some particular intrinsic feature, but by doing tests of their actual uh, Doppler shifts, they are in fact the most distant objects. Their light is red shifted because of the great expansion of the universe. 
And here are some of them magnified. And what you can tell when you study these, you can see it a little bit here, is that the more distant galaxies are really ratty looking. They're not, um, they're not yet in these beautiful grand spiral patterns. They are fragmented. They are um, ratty. Many of them appear to be interacting with each other. Uh, when you look at them more closely, you see these kinds of interactions. You also find out that these early galaxies don't have as many of the heavier elements that our more uh, nearby galaxies do in our Milky Way. And that's because it takes several generations of stars going through this cycle of forming and then the, the, the larger ones exploding as supernovae. And during these supernovae explosions, heavier elements are actually created. There's nothing else that can create some of these heavier elements. And those heavier elements then seed the next the interstellar medium for the next generation of star formation. The next, the next uh, collapsed stars will have some of these heavier elements. And this goes on for several cycles so that you have in our own galaxy and galaxies near us in space and time a much richer collection of, of uh, material and heavier elements than the basically hydrogen and smattering of helium in these other galaxies. As you look at some of these earlier regions, you can actually see the rattiness of these galaxies as they are forming. In the earlier universe, the universe was smaller. Remember, the universe has been expanding. So as you're looking out at distance of space and time, you're also looking at a time when um, things were closer together and they had more of a chance of gravitational interaction. Galaxies did a lot more merging in, in the long-term past history. And sometimes you can see some of that merging going on. It's a, it's a messy process, but it takes, uh, after you give it enough time, these merged galaxies will eventually, through gravitational and tidal and rotational action, uh, turn into these beautiful grand spirals that are closer to what we have. So this is one of those messy regions of, of galactic interaction. We can actually see things at the very, near the very beginning of the universe. And... This is, in fact, a map of the leftover radiation from what I call the let there be light event. Uh, the, the, the beginning of creation was a spectacular uh, event, and astronomers now almost entirely uh, are, are of one mind that at least this universe, uh, and maybe other universes as well, uh, began with something that's, that's loosely referred to as a Big Bang, but it was a spectacular event. And that uh, event, uh, shortly thereafter, should have left behind radiation through filling the universe. And that radiation, as the universe expands, gets cooler and cooler and longer and longer wavelengths. But it doesn't disappear. It's still there, that remnant background radiation. This was Nobel Prize material that most of you are familiar with. It was discovered a few decades ago as the cosmic microwave background radi radiation. Any direction you point... It's there, um, and it's here. It's everywhere. More recently, uh, NASA has used satellites to map uh, more precisely the distribution of this cosmic microwave background radiation and various subtle properties about it. So this is a, a probe that was called the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe map of the entire sky projected here on, on, the, on the flat plane. And first of all, they found that this background radiation is unbelievably uniform in every direction. But not 
absolutely uniform. And so the colors here are tiny, tiny variations in, in temperature as they gauge it in different directions. Why is this important? Well, if you don't have some um, early on differentiation in temperature throughout the universe in this energy, you uh, will not get the kind of matter clumping that eventually turned into galaxies. You see, we don't have matter that's uniformly distributed um, around the, the, uh, the sky, except to the extent that we see galaxies in every direction. But matter has, over time, coagulated gravitationally into these pockets that became galaxies and stars. And you have to start by having cool zones where that begins. We've seen that here. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, we can actually see uh, in this background radiation the, um, how this matter was first distributed. There's something else that's called baryon acoustic oscillations that you can gauge in the early universe. And you can compare that directly with the distribution of galaxies that we see now, 13.7 billion years later. It's quite amazing that we can now compare you know, what happened right at the beginning of time with the distribution of galaxies that we have now. And that's a, a, a hot topic right now is also how uh, the expansion of the universe and something that we call dark energy has affected that development of galaxies over time. This is kind of a pictorial history of the universe from the beginning um, when, when, uh, when the whole universe as we know it was begun. The progression through a period known as the Dark Ages uh, when there was not any radiation release that we can see, the cooling that allowed the formation of stars and the, the re-release of radiation that we can see, the formation and structure in galaxies over time that we've been able to observe with our telescopes. And now this is the current period of time where we have telescopes like, like WMAP looking back throughout the history of the universe. It's quite amazing. We can also tell from these early universe observations compared to now that our universe is 13.7 billion years old. The fact that we can even know this to a decimal place is quite amazing. And we also have, uh, which I will explain to you a little bit later, a mystery going on about the expansion of the universe. Another perspective is activity. Um, many people think that stars and galaxies are just sitting there, and uh, they are not just sitting there. Uh, the universe is a very, very active place. Um, these are two galaxies that are courting each other. They are in love. They are, um, uh, they are interacting. And when galaxies interact, um, they sometimes can, uh, the, the tidal forces and gravitational pull between the two can create tremendous distortions between them. It can also cause a, a very active burst of star formation as you get the, the gas clouds in these galaxies really uh, spun up by being attracted to the other galaxy. And in some cases, the two galaxies will actually be pulled into one another. This, uh, these spectacular collisions often have not even one star hitting one other star because the volumes here are, are mostly empty. But the, it's the gravitational and tidal forces that, that uh, create tremendous changes in, in these objects as they interact. Um, Here's a system, the antennae galaxies, that are even further along in their interaction. These are actually merging. They will eventually become a single galaxy, but in the meantime, there's all kinds of disruption going on and a fabulous burst of star formation. 
This is the result of two galaxies that merged in a rather um, violent fashion. One of them actually just sort of went through the other. And, when, and so if you imagine two spiral galaxies, all that's left now of these is a kind of uh, merged halo of one, and the spiral arms got stripped off of the other and are just simply in orbit around the merged core of the other. This is, these objects are um, seen, uh, there are several of these objects that we know about that are the results of two galaxies that basically went through one another. Um, we're also able to use different kinds of telescopes to th see things going on in other galaxies. I, I myself am trained as a radio astronomer. I use these dish telescopes out at the at very large array out in New Mexico. They allow us to see other frequencies of light, such as radio waves, that are emitted from certain types of objects in space, one of them being from the cores of other galaxies. So this, this is kind of a you know, cheat picture where they've pasted one over the other, but, but the idea here is to show you what radio telescopes can see about other galaxies. In radio waves, this would be this blue object here would be one of these other galaxies. Many of them have what we call active nuclei. What an active nuclei means is that there's a massive black hole in the center of these other galaxies. And black holes not only pull stuff in, but they also have the ability to shoot stuff out um, and, uh, because of their magnetic fields that surround them. So these are jets that are seen around many of these external galaxies being expelled into the surrounding medium. And uh, the whole galaxy, as we would know it, would fit down in this blue area. The, the colors here are just put in so that you can see. They are, these are actually radio uh, light that you would not be able to see with your, with your visible, uh, with your eyes. The jets span much, much farther than the whole extent of the visible galaxy. And they are interjecting lots of energy from the galaxy back into the intergalactic medium. Lots of things go on within our own galaxy. We can't take a picture of our own galaxy because we can't get out of it to take a picture of it. But we can take a picture of other spiral galaxies like this one and start uh, to get a, a view for it. We think that our sun is out in, in one of our spiral arms, maybe a little bit outside the core of the spiral arm, about uh, you know, two-thirds of the way out. As, as a sort of average star system. But there are many, many forming star systems. I've already shown you the Orion Nebula. Um, this is another image of it using a different camera on Hubble, kind of gives you a different perspective. But these bright stars called the trapezium are ionizing this gas. There's an ionization front that's moving forward in the surrounding cloud. It's basically a very active area. And behind it, there's a dark cloud that's not lit up yet, that's much bigger, that has even younger stars that have yet to form. They're called protostars. Uh, this is the Eagle Nebula. Many of you remember these pillars. Uh, this is, these are actually sort of uh, typical features that you see in many of these clouds where bright stars have formed. They're starting to ionize the gas around them and basically blow, blow away the gas. It's called radiation pressure. But some of the denser regions act as kind of shadows for the material behind it. So as this radiation comes, you know, imagine bright stars up above this screen shining down and the radiation is kind of clearing out the less dense material, but leaving behind, at least for, for the near term, some of the denser stuff that's shadowing the stuff behind it, so you get these, these tremendous pillars. And since this stuff is actually denser, that's a prime region for new clumps of gas to collapse and form new stars. So as you study the tips of these pillars, you often find these young protostars. You see them in millimeter, submillimeter, and radio, radio waves of light. 
You can also see a lot when you look in these things in other wavelengths, and we'll see if it will let me appear in an infrared light. When you look at infrared light, you can actually see uh, behind some of the obscuring dust. Uh, we'll see if it's going to let me do this. Um, come on, Betsy, as my dad used to say to our old car. Okay, it didn't like that. Um, Ah, there we go. Okay. Those are the same pillars, okay? But, uh, but this is what it looks like when you use an infrared, a very good infrared telescope. You remember the pillars, one, two, three. Remember where I told you that young stars were probably forming on the tips of those pillars? Well, they show up brightly in the infrared. So these are, these are little what we call protostars that are collapsed gas. Eventually, there'll be enough pressure from these little collapsed blobs of gas that the hydrogen in the core will start fusing into helium and that fusion reaction releases light and that's all a star is it's just a ball of gas going through fusion um, some of these pillars are become a little more transparent in the infrared so that you can actually see some of the bright hot spots of star formation buried like this one down in these pillars different wavelengths of light different kinds of telescopes give us different views into these regions here is um, another star-forming region seen with an infrared space telescope. Hubble is not the only space telescope we have. We also have the Spitzer Space Telescope, such as this one, uh, revealing to us a marvelous uh, activity going on in many of these interstellar clouds. You see a lot of, of these pillar activities, uh, pillar features in this interstellar cloud as well. It's, that's known as the Eta Carina star-forming region. What about older stars? That's the beginning of star life. We also see a lot of stars that are about to use up their fuel and they start becoming unstable as they run out of hydrogen at the core. When old stars begin to get unstable, they start to lose their outer layers. And that can be a quite beautiful process. So this is one of these aging stars that's puffing out kind of in a periodic puffs its outer atmosphere as it grows more unstable. You even see a couple of these jets. Jets are ubiquitous in a lot of these uh, astrophysical systems. Uh, a lot of the times these are called uh, planetary nebulae and that's just because uh, many years ago no one knew what these things were. They called them planet. They thought they had something to do with planets. They don't have anything to do with planets but the name sticks on and again a nebula is kind of a generic term. So these planetary nebulae have nothing to do with planets but they're actually old smaller stars and our sun is projected to go through this as it gets old as well. A larger star, when it runs out of fuel, has a much more spectacular end. A massive star will end in an, an unstable explosion that's known as a supernova. So this is the uh, Crab Nebula, uh, as seen with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's the remnant of an explosion that took place, um, I think we're talking a thousand years ago. I forget how, how long ago this took place, but what I remember What's very spectacular is that this particular star explosion was recorded by Chinese astronomers. So we've been following the remnant of this explosion as humans for at least a thousand years and watching the remnant debris expand outward and outward. And remember I told you that it's the explosion of these stars that populates the surrounding medium with more enriched gas and, and heavier elements. And we can actually see that taking place in the most beautiful way. The core of these explosions, which we can't piece out here, is often left with something very dense, something such as a neutron star or even a black hole, the leftover remnant of these, uh, of these exploded stars. 
Here's another one, but it's seen uh, in X-ray light as well as optical light. The different colors here show you the different wavelengths of light, the hot X-ray gas, the visible light. This is another remnant of a supernova looked, studied in different wavelengths. Okay, let's look at uh, mystery. Um, there's a lot of mystery in the universe. I've already mentioned some of it. Uh, we have found out that there's a lot of things that we don't know what's going on here. One of them is when you look at a galaxy and you watch the rotation of the stars and gas going around the galaxy, uh, orbits are pretty simple, and you can pretty easily calculate how much mass must be inside an orbit to create an orbit of a certain velocity. Otherwise, the material would either fly away or it would fall in. You have to have a, a sort of precise amount of mass interior to an orbit to create a certain velocity of orbit. And it was found by looking at these rotation curves of galaxies, looking at how fast things are rotating from inward to out, which you can measure by, again, looking at the Doppler shifted velocities of these of material in a galaxy, assuming it has a little bit of an edge on tilt so that you can capture that radial motion. It was determined that many, that all galaxies seem to have something going on where the rotation velocities don't match the amount of visible matter. And that's, uh, that's, that uh, tells us that there's a lot of matter we don't know about what it is. And it's called dark matter because astronomers just call anything dark something if they don't know what it is. So um, there's a lot of dark matter out there. There's another mystery going on out there, which is that, um, do you remember... All the years, those of you who've been interested in astronomy for a while, of trying to, under, trying to decide whether this expansion of the universe would continue forever or as to whether it would turn around and we'd become crunched in a big crunch. And that was the big debate because gravity is the only force we know of that works on cosmological scales like this. And gravity only does one thing. It pulls matter close together. So since the galaxies appeared to be moving apart from each other in the expansion of space, it was felt that gravity could do one of two things, either just slow it down forever so that this expansion would slow and slow, or, or be strong enough to actually stop it and turn it around and bring everything back together in a big crunch. But a few years ago, astronomers looking at these very distant galaxies and gauging the brightness of the supernovae explosions in them so that you could actually determine the distances of these galaxies and then measuring their velocities through the Doppler motion of these galaxies determined that the expansion of the universe is not only continuing on, but it's accelerating. It's getting faster. It has, over most of the history of the universe, been accelerating. Um, we don't know of anything that works on cosmological scales that pushes matter apart. So astronomers call it dark energy because we don't know what it is. So, uh, so it's quite um, a mystery. And in fact, if you think about... Uh, you know, the sort of matter and energy budget of the universe, the, the, uh, the dark energy is about 73% that we don't know what it really is. And then the dark matter that's causing these uh, gravitational motions is, is about 22%. And the stuff that we are sort of familiar with, atoms and elements and so forth, is about 4%. So... Um, there's a lot of work to be done if those of you are looking for a field that has unanswered questions. Um, one of the missions that I work on, uh, I like this quote here, um, at NASA, we're trying to develop a, a, a new space telescope that will study the dark energy. 
um, right now it's generically called the Joint Dark Energy Mission, which would be a joint venture between NASA and potentially the Department of Energy. And that mission is one, ranked one of the most highest priorities by astronomers in the country to more carefully gauge the expansion of the universe and try to figure out what, whether the, dark, the expansion we see is due to uh, something we don't understand about gravity, there's an, maybe a new component that we don't understand, whether it's due to some fundamental uh, beginning uh, um, parameters of the universe, we, we don't know. We need to understand this a little bit better. It's a high priority for astrophysics right now. Okay, in the last few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what maybe these things can tell us. You know, does the character of the heavens reflect the character of their creator? And um, I don't believe that, you know, science gives us sort of direct measurable, you know, proof of God or anything like that. But if you... If you have determined uh, that that God is um, in control. If your faith allows that, we can certainly, I believe, glean some characteristics of God from what we see in the universe. And these are some that I just came up with. You can come up with your own. But uh, to, to me, it appears that, that, that God must be very powerful um, I would add the word extravagant. You know, why do you need 100 billion galaxies and 100 billion stars in each one? Creative. I mean, th these objects and the activity going on are, are spectacular. Um, they give a, a, cre a creative uh, being and a lover of beauty. Because not only has God created beauty, but he's given us the eyes to perceive beauty. Uh, patience, as far as we're concerned, uh, you know, why would you... Why would you allow these things to develop over billions of years when the very beings who are able to appreciate it the most uh, only live a few decades? Um, faithful. God has created fundamental physical laws and a progression of time that allows order, allows progression, and allows us to study it. God appears to desire freedom, uh, but within that context of faithfulness. So we have these these. Uh, you know, um, issues of quantum theory and chaos. And, and I would recommend to you the fabulous talk this afternoon by Dr. Mark Shellhammer on God's work within randomness and so forth. Um, Dr. Shellhammer is, is awake, I hope, and he's also my husband down here. Um, uh, God is the one who gives and enables life. And I believe that that the progression of the universe has, has enabled us, at least on this planet, to have life as we know it, and maybe other places too. And that God is one who loves. He enables us to investigate and appreciate and understand the magnificent cosmos of which we are a part. And I believe it's even more than that, that, that uh, you know, sometimes there's a sort of mental disconnect between this God of, of the cosmos and Jesus the Savior who, who walked around in Galilee. And, you know, this is very hard for us to comprehend, but Jesus the Messiah is the focus of the cosmos from the beginning of time. I mean, he, he's not an afterthought. Um, everything in all creation is made and sustained through him. He's the focus of all creation. And uh, Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in many ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay. Um, so it's a little it's a little hard to think that to understand how the one who was walking around in Gal Galilee and touching people and healing them and teaching them and giving them parables is the same one through whom uh, God made the entire universe that we that we are now able to observe more and more of. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The same God, the same Christ. Okay. I'm going to skip some of this because I have a talk that could go on another half an hour and I think our, our chair would be unhappy if I did that. But, um, but anyway, this same God gives us new birth. Okay. I have a few more things to show you. Uh, what does the Bible say about the heavens? The general themes are that God is responsible for the heavens and everything we find in nature and that God is pleased with discovery and with good stewardship. I like the way in Genesis where one of the first tasks of Adam was simply to go out and look at all the animals and name them. That's what we do in astronomy. We call stars red giants and brown dwarfs and things like that. Um, we have our Earth that I told you before. That's our one little planet that we have right now uh, the most control over and the most responsibility toward. Um, how do we respond to what we've just heard? I think we give praise. I think ex exploration pleases God, and we have lots of things left to explore. I, I mentioned to you the Hubble. This is where they're preparing to train astronauts to service the Hubble. This is a tank down at Johnson Space Center. Um, I'm going to, uh, so watch out in the first week of October, we should have a servicing mission. And I must mention to you that this is an, a real answer to prayer because I was working at headquarters during very tumultuous times when this mission was canceled. And there was a lot of prayer to, to basically be able to turn this around and, and have a safe mission. So um, I trust it will be safe. I'm going to speed through this. We're discovering new things all the time. We're discovering things that make people upset, like the fact that there's a lot of things out there bigger than Pluto. So what do you do? Um, <laughs> some people actually get angry when you discover new things in the cosmos because it upsets what they already thought. We're discovering new spots on Jupiter, new storms. Um, we're sending things out to Mars. These are pictures from Spirit and Opportunity, the, the rovers that have been driving around on Mars for three years and won't die. They, uh, they're sending back more and more pictures. And uh, Folks, there's a lot of red rocks on Mars. Um, there's a new probe up there called the Phoenix that's just scooping up dirt and analyzing it to, to understand how the water vapor and frost can be sustained, which we have already know is on there, and see what else is in the uh, dirt. I'm moving through. In my group, in NASA, a hot topic now is detecting planets around other stars. One of the ways we detect them now is indirectly by, mo by noticing the wobbling of stars um, in the heavens as they are tugged on by planets around them. We also see planets transiting in front of these stars and are even starting to be able to take spectra of the larger planets to see what their atmospheres are composed of. The goal now is to be able to, to build a telescope where you could actually take a picture of an Earth-like planet and take a spectrum and see if it has an atmosphere like our own, if it could sustain life. That should be coming within the next 10 to 20 years. It's a very hot and exciting topic right now. And in fact, exploration has been uh, in the minds of people for centuries. I like this quote from Thomas Wright. Um, he's sort of counting the idea of how many stars there must be 
and that there might, in fact, there must, in fact, be life in these other systems. Uh, now admitting the breadth of, of what he calls Via Lactea, the Milky Way, to be at a mean but nine degrees, and supposing only 1,200 stars in every degree, there will be nearly in the whole orbicular area about 3,888,000 stars and all of these in a very minute portion of the great expanse of heaven. What a vast idea of endless beings must this produce and generate in our minds. And when we consider them all as flaming suns, progenitors, and primum mobilis, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, of a still much greater number of peopled worlds, what less than an infinity can circumscribe them, less than an eternity comprehend them, or less than omnipotence produce and support them? And where can our wonders cease? Uh, I like that idea. I mean, when we, now we know much more. We know how many galaxies there are. We know how many stars there are. I think uh, ex exploring these things, finding out what's out there, glorifies God. And we might even find life out there. I think God would be uh, uh, very pleased if we found out things that God has known all along. Okay, we're studying these regions. We wonder if we're significant. Are we significant? Uh, no and yes. Uh, we're not significant because of our size and place in the universe or our lifespan, but we're con we are significant because of God's choice to love us. Um, Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon of the stars which you've established, and now we can add to that galaxies, and the beginning of time and the expansion and acceleration of the universe and black holes and merging galaxies and star formation. What are human beings that you're mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? And yet you made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Um, what should we do? I, I'll close by saying we have responsibilities to tend the garden and to care for the earth and all its inhabitants. We saw last night a rather sobering picture of the of the change in our own climate that may be caused, you know, uh, by some of our own activities, we might be able to change things for people most ex uh, most affected by this. And what about service to God? I've already mentioned giving praise to God. Um, there are several of us. I, this picture I gave at the talk on on women in science yesterday. So these are female Christian astronomers, a, a few that I picked out doing various things to serve God in the field. Joan Centrella down here was a keynote speaker at ASA last year studying gravitational waves. I myself have done work both in research and also in science policy, which I think is another way of serving God. Deb Harsma, along with her husband Lauren at Calvin College, are doing fabulous things. They've written a new book called Origins, which I think is a tremendous help to, to Christians everywhere. And Gladys Kober here works at Goddard, spends much of her own time serving people who otherwise wouldn't have the chance to hear about astronomy. This is the book on origins I mentioned. This is Gladys in India. She just returned from a trip where she's gone to an orphanage to talk to these kids about astronomy. The kids are delighted to hear about it. Most of them are girls. And in this particular orphanage, these children are for the most part children of Christian martyrs, who many of whom have been killed for their faith. And the man who started this orphanage took, decided to take the children of martyrs in and raise them. So uh, this is a place where people have truly suffered for their faith. 
and yet they love hearing about astronomy, okay? These girls were delighted that Gladys came over and told them about what we're studying in astronomy. And so I, I like this picture. Uh, don't think that astronomy or any science should only be for the privileged. You know, God wants us as part of our service to share our excitement with people all over the world who could be uplifted by what we're discovering. Finally, this really is my closing. Um, I have pictures. I have gifts for you from Hubble. Uh, this is one of those star-forming pillars over here on the left. This is a uh, galaxy over here on the right. And uh, um, there's actually two galaxies here. And I have pictures of this and other things that you're welcome to have. I think I will put them out maybe on the book table downstairs so that after the worship service this morning you can, you can have them. Um, it tells about them on the back. And just to get us... oh. I want to advertise our books here. I've also written a chapter in this book called Not Just Science, which is a wonderful book of essays. It's good for group discussions and studies. I want to close as we go into our worship service uh, by having us, if I could sing, I would, but I can't sing very well, so we'll just read it. Um, How great thou art. Um, Let's contemplate these words as we prepare our hearts for worship. Uh, I'm not going to have a question time right now, but uh, you're welcome to come to me later and ask me questions or we can discuss any of the things I've showed today. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer.